Area 941 podcasts are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. Radio Walensky concludes its June Black Lives Matter series of interviews with Ayanna Mathis discussing her 2013 novel, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. My guest is Ayanna Mathis, who has a novel, The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Ayanna Mathis is a graduate of Iowa Workshop, worked under Marilyn Robinson. This book has been getting a lot of buzz, a lot of great reviews, including in The Nation. An Oprah Book Club selection, which meant that Oprah Winfrey contacted you out of the blue. The phone rings. She says, it's Oprah, and you say... I say, no, it isn't. As I now know, Oprah likes to call the people who, who she has selected for the club. And I didn't know this, of course. The magazine, O Magazine, had contacted Knopf saying, oh, we'd like to review it. So we're, of course, all chuffed and happy because, you know, it's the first novel. And yay, you know. And so I was expecting a phone call from the book's editor who said they, they said, oh, she just needs a really quick quote. They just want to talk to her for 10 minutes. And so I said, OK, great. And I, I was actually on vacation at the time. And so we sort of carved out this time and set the appointed hour. And I'm expecting the book's editor to call me. You were in and Paris, right? I was in Paris. Yeah, I was yeah. on vacation in Paris. And so I you know, sort of run in from my sightseeing, you know, wiping the baguette crumbs from my shirt. And I sit down, and it was supposed to be at 2 o'clock. 2 o'clock, the phone didn't ring. And so I was waiting. And at about 2.11, I thought, oh, maybe I should call them. Maybe the phone isn't working or who knows what. And then the phone rings at 2.12, and there, there was this voice on the other end saying, this is Oprah Winfrey. The 12 tribes of Hattie is a novel, but it's actually a novel of interrelated short stories. Each of the stories deals with, well, the 12 tribes, there are 11 kids, Mm -hmm. and then there's one grandchild, which are the 12 tribes of Hattie, which is a biblical reference, which we'll get into. But each of these deals with a person who is either the child or grandchild of this woman, Hattie Shepard, who made the Great Migration from the South to Philadelphia, as did your family and many, many other African-American families. I understand that some of it has autobiographical overtones, particularly the story of Cassie and her daughter, which seems to parallel your story a bit, not in, not totally, but somewhat. So let, let's start there. I understand that for a long time prior to Iowa, you were working on a memoir mm-hmm. or then a fictionalized memoir. Was it that more or less that part of the story? Not really. It was a bit of a mess, that fictionalized memoir. It started out as actually a memoir. It was basically these sorts, I don't know what you would call them. They're almost like prose poetry. I wrote poetry for a long time, for most of, of my life, since I was a little girl. And so these were sort of autobiographical snippets and sort of bits of life that, that I was hoping to stitch into, you know, a, a larger memoir. And then, and then the memoir just wasn't working. I discovered about myself that I'm not very good 
with uh, a set of facts to which I must adhere. It it's, tends to completely stymie me. It, it sort of um, tends to block my imagination almost entirely. I have a great admiration for people who can kind of write beautifully in that genre because it does not work for me, as I discovered. <laughs> and then I fictionalized it and, and then uh, went to Iowa, etc. And, and And then that project was entirely abandoned because, as I said, it just wasn't working. It was stiff and stilted and wrong. And then this this book uh, sort of came out of it. I didn't realize it was a book at first, but the stories that became the book came out of that abandoned memoir. Which was the first story that you wrote? It was a, a sort of a strange hybrid that doesn't appear in the book in its form at all. It was a, a kind of a hybrid between the first story in the book and the very last. So Hattie was present and her grandchild was present. And there was an allusion to the sort of traumatic event that happens to Hattie in the first chapter in the book. But it, it really was kind of a prototype, I guess you could call it. it. It didn't end up in the book as it was. But certainly Hattie's character to some extent was was very present in that in that first iteration I guess you could call it did Hattie emerge somewhat from your your grandmother who sort of took care of you at times before your family fell out? I think so. You know, Hattie <coughs> is very, very different from my own grandmother. You know, my, my grandmother had a kind of stoicism and a great sort of dignity and reserve. But Hattie is very different than she is. Uh, Hattie is much angrier than my, my own grandmother was and much more just sort of difficult, I think, than my own grandmother actually was and more capable of rage, I think, than my own grandmother grandmother actually was. Did your grandmother talk about her own experiences of the migration at all? Not at all. I didn't sort of grow up with stories about the migration or stories of the South, none of that. Also, by the time I sort of came on the scene, my grandparents were born in 1910 and 1908, and they came to Philadelphia in the very early part of the the 20th century. And so by the time I was born, they had been there for, oh, I guess... 50 years, maybe more. So it, it wasn't a thing that was kind of part of the, the dialogue or the stories of, of growing up at all for me. In that sense, you had to do your research for what it was like at the time for 6 million African Americans mm. to leave the South and come North for jobs and freedom. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you know, the uh, Isabel Wilkerson's incredible book, The Warmth of Other Suns, was very helpful to me. I think it's also important to say that the Great Migration really is kind of the backdrop, I think, to the book. I don't think that it's a book that's about the Great Migration. It really is primarily about this family. But, of course, the Great Migration informs their circumstance. It informs their circumstance in the sense that Hattie is the central element to each of these different stories. Absolutely. And it's Hattie's background in life, not just the tragedy that occurs in the first story, but everything that came before that influences how these children grow up. Certainly. I think that's certainly certainly the case. She is enormously kind of formed and influenced by what happens to her in that first chapter, as we've alluded to. But certainly, I think, though particular issues of race are obviously um, exerting a great deal of pressure on these characters, they are also kind of externalized. They're sort of off page, if you will, or, or off stage, I guess, if you could use another kind of theaterish term. And I was very interested in, in doing that quite purposely because I didn't want these characters or their lives to be solely viewed or 
uh, understood through the prism of race. I, I wanted them to have first and foremost their own very particular humanity and their own very particular individuality. And of course, if we're talking about black characters as we are in that time period, obviously, you know, there are there are the, there's this sort of larger world of of the Jim Crow South and even of obviously the discrimination that happened in the North that is exerting pressure on their lives and on their community. Hattie herself, how did that character emerge? It's hard to kind of trace the evolution of of an imagined act, you know. I've heard said, and I think it's very true, that that often people are writing their first books their whole lives. I ended up abandoning the botched, you know, fictionalized memoir. And I thought, well, I'll just try and write some short stories. I am not sure to this day I don't really know where Hattie came from. She sort of appeared with this grandchild later in her life. The second story that I wrote, interestingly enough, I didn't understand that she was the life's blood of the book after having written that first story. I was probably about three in before I realized that this was actually a book. The second story I think that I wrote was Franklin, which uh, he's a, comes later in the book, actually, and he was a soldier in Vietnam. What happened is that I, I kept writing these stories about these people who were if not in Philadelphia, connected to it somehow in the 40s and 50s and 60s. And they kept sort of cropping up. And then at a certain point, I realized that they were all of a family and that Hattie was their mother. And so then with those first three stories, there was a process of of kind of going back and understanding them a little more um, broadly and understanding how their mother was kind of influencing their lives and inserting her. And after those first three stories, she just was very organically a part of, of the book. And so she appeared in each story very organically. The other story, was that just the separation of the Salah story and uh, the Hattie story and then Franklin, or was there another story in there? They were sort of separating that first kind of prototype story and fleshing it out enormously, because also that first prototype story, I think, was very short. As I recall, it was maybe 15 pages, something like that. I could have been six stories in before I really separated them. It was a while. Then Franklin. And then I believe the next story after that was Ella, actually, in which, of course, Hattie was was quite present. The story of Ella is actually the story of Pearl and Benny traveling north to get this baby who Hattie can't take care of. Yeah, exactly, exactly. As much as all of the characters in this book, particularly Hattie and her husband, August, have a very mixed relationship with the South. You know, August tends to be quite nostalgic about it, and Hattie just hates it utterly. And because Hattie is so strong, I became concerned about the book becoming um, sort of... uh, overwhelmingly anti-South. And I didn't want it to be that to be the case. And I wanted, I thought that it was very necessary that there were people who were living in the South and who were successful in the South for those people to have an equal representation in the book. It seemed very important. Yet at the same time, they're the ones who were virtually assaulted on their way North. It's one of the most powerful scenes in the 12 tribes of Hattie, Ayanna Mathis, that they're having a picnic and along come some white people and they're in a position to not do anything except try to escape with their lives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That also I thought was very important, you know, because in as much as the book mostly takes place in the North, where that kind of, at least in the lives of these characters, that kind of overt violence and overt racial violence is not really present. It seemed also very necessary to, to in some ways, illustrate or describe what they were fleeing from, you know, what Hattie at all were, 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 were getting away from. 
So at that point, we bring in the biblical notion of the 12 tribes of Hattie, which sure. is the exodus of the 12 tribes of Israel as a metaphor for the migration north. Around that three or four story mark, you know, I sort of had these stories and I was, um, my roommate, who is also my best friend when I was in Iowa, which is where I wrote the book almost entirely, uh, is named Justin Torres, who wrote a, a beautiful book called We the Animals. And so I had all these stories and he says, he's like, eh, you know, I think this is a book. And I was like, oh, come on. It's not a book. You're just so silly. That's not a book, you know. And then about a week, week later, I thought, oh, well, you know, the, it, it is a book, you know. <laughs> the title, however, Oddly, though I didn't realize that I had a book, there was this notion of the 12 tribes that was sort of swearing around in, in the back of my brain, I think. I didn't think I knew how to apply it until I understood that I actually had a book and this is who these people were. And I was very fortunate because, I, I, as you mentioned, I studied with Marilyn Robinson, who is, who is very much a, a, you know, a theologian, really. And so she used to let me go to her house. She has a, a library, of, a theological library, basically, in her house. And so I would go there and just kind of look things up and poke around. And I knew that I was interested in the metaphor of an exodus. But what I was also interested in, and which I think makes the, 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 the 12 tribes of Israel so apt as a metaphor, is the idea that, that people would sort of come out of bondage into freedom and then find that that freedom really is not at all what they expected to do. There's a lot of bumps in the road, and it is actually really quite difficult. And that, of course, is the case with, with, with Hattie and, and her tribes in this book. One of the advantages you had is having created a character like Hattie, who is very distant and cold, it allows you the opportunity to create screwed up kids because they are <laughs> going to be screwed up, which, of course, forms the basis of fiction. Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. 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 Yeah. And, and, you know, and it's interesting because Hattie, Hattie also provides a, a unique opportunity to to create a character that is at first glance, perhaps not the most sympathetic character in the world. She is in that first chapter because she's just a girl and she's innocent and she's filled with hope and, and all these things. But once the, the sort of ugliness of her life begins, she is, you know, she's sort of encased in ice and, and she's angry. I find her to be actually very likable and I'm quite attached to her. But she provides an interesting opportunity because... I think it's easy to sort of show the ways in which a reader will like a likable character. It is much more interesting to me to find ways inside a character that is not necessarily all that likable. It, it allows for a, an exploration of, of nuances and complexities that I found to be really rich. Well, it also allows us as readers to let the character grow on us because by the time we, we meet Floyd and Six, which are the second and third stories, it's pretty clear that their contact with their mother has been pretty negative. Yeah, it is. Floyd, I think, is, is sort of the, the only living character, you know, aside from, from her children that, that die early on. He's the only living character that really has any experience of affection or tenderness with her. Because when we meet Floyd, when he sort of comes onto the scene, it's not long after the, 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 you know, her children have died. And she's essentially just sort of sunk into a very, very deep depression. And she sort of wanders around the house sort of disconnected from everything, staying in bed until noon or one o'clock, and it just sort of really floored by what's happened to her. But because of that, the sort of icy wall that she later erects 
and uses to navigate the world, it's not fully in place when Floyd comes along. And so there's this tiny little window of time in which she is not necessarily affectionate, but she allows tenderness to be shown to her, which is, of course, a thing that she doesn't do anymore. And then by the time poor six comes along, it's pretty much, you know, the ice is over the heart, you know, to quote that New York Times review, which I think was a very apt description. Though, what's interesting about Hattie is that she does display her love in very small ways when Six is sort of going off to become this itinerant preacher in the South. I mean, he has to leave because he's done, you know, something he shouldn't have done. She seems very angry with him. And then just before the car door is about to close and they're driving off to Alabama, she, she presses a Bible into his hand. That's sort of the most that she's capable of. But these small gestures are enormous for her. To me, it would have been great to see what happens to Floyd. Floyd is a pretty remarkable character. He's a musician who is also on the down low. Yeah, he is. He is. He's he's struggling mightily with his sexuality. And it's 1948. He also is sort of itinerant. You know, he's trying to make a name for himself as a trumpeter and kind of juke joints in the South. He's really having an enormously hard time with it. He does actually very briefly get referenced in a later chapter, Alison Billups. We learn from that that he has been actually fairly successful and that and that Hattie uncharacteristically has been clipping bits from newspapers and things like that when there are sort of appearances about, you know, articles about him or news of his appearances as a musician and sending them around to people, which is a massively un-Hattie-like thing to do, you know. So I think he, he sort of turns out okay in a certain kind of way. And at least we know that he continues to play his music and he's successful. We don't know what happens with his sexuality. It is my sort of uh, hope, I guess, for him, because I don't really know what happens to him either. You know, my intention very much with these characters was to sort of zoom in on them at some very, very critical moment in their lives to stay with them during that moment and then to zoom out. And then and sort of the silences and the gaps between the stories and the lack of connection between the characters is left both to the reader's imagination and I think also is a function of some of the uh, I don't like the word dysfunction, but I'll use it. Some of the dysfunction that, that Hattie passes on to her children, which is an absolute sort of inability to ask for help, to rely on anyone else. You know, I mean, these are a lot of siblings here. There, you know, there, there are many of them and they don't go to each other either in moments of crisis or of need, nor in moments of joy. They just sort of go it alone because that's the example that their mother gave them. Ayanna Mathis, maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but do you think you could actually leave these characters alone after this? I think maybe, you know, <laughs> which sounds such a funny, uh, seems such a funny thing to do, but I, I think so. I, I, you know, never say never. I, I mean, you know, I can't know if, if maybe they will kind of come up in some way, shape or form in subsequent novels. I don't have that intention at the moment, as much as perhaps a reader wouldn't necessarily think this, but they feel very finished to me or... They feel at least that in those moments in which I wanted to know them, I knew them or do know them as thoroughly as I could. I don't necessarily see returning to them, but you never know. You have pretty much said that since you were a single child growing up with a single mother Mm. and after the age of 10, more or less divorced from the rest of the family, As you were writing this book, these characters kind of became your family. They did in a certain sense. They were a kind of an attempt to, how would one say, uh, create a context, I guess, you know, because certainly 
when you are an only child and you're raised by your mother, there are wonderful things about that, which is, are sort of a, a boundless freedom. You know, I didn't have anybody sort of saying, you need to be a doctor, or you need to get married when you're 20, or you need, you know, all the kinds of influences I think that family and neighborhood can have that form a person. I, I sort of didn't have any of those. So there was an enormous freedom for which I'm thankful. But at the same time, the flip side of that coin is a sense sometimes I think of being somewhat rootless. These characters, I think, in, in many ways were uh, an attempt to create a kind of context, albeit a fictional one. When the break happened, I mean, mm-hmm. were you aware of the circumstances of it or was it just, I'm not speaking to my family, don't ask any questions? It was very mysterious and it wasn't sudden. You know, it was, it was a very sort of mysterious occurrence that happened, I guess, over a period of time, I think. Did you reconnect with the family? Um, I'm in some contact with them now, yeah. Yeah, and your mom's still around? Oh, yeah. Yeah, my mother and I are very close. Have you had contact with the family about this book? Just congratulations. They've been, you know, the people that have contacted me have been incredibly congratulatory, and, and so it's been really nice, actually. Well, I guess the good thing is that since they are not based on real people, exactly. it makes it easier. Exactly, exactly, exactly. <laughs> what kind of research did you do for the sections on mental illness, on tuberculosis, and on life as a down-low gay person in 1948. (laughs) I'll sort of tell an anecdote. When I was at Iowa, Edward P. Jones, who wrote The Known World, came. And people ask him about his research all the time, you know, because, I mean, that book is set in the 1850s. It's in Virginia. It's during, you know. And he said the funniest thing, which was, you know, if you tell your reader with authority that they're in 1856 or whatever year it was in Virginia, they will believe you until you have someone answering a cell phone. And I thought that it was really ingenious because in in many ways, it's some of what I did. I did a lot of fact checking. I didn't do a great deal of sort of original research. My strategy generally was to sort of write whatever my imagination dictated to me and then to go back and see if I'd said anything absolutely absurd, you know. And of course, like with the tuberculosis, that got researched. That was an example, of course, that got researched pretty early, like how would this be treated, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But generally speaking, I would just sort of write as, you know, imagination led me and then go back and and make sure I hadn't said anything absurd. Coming back to the religion thing again, the final story in this church, they're dealing Mm -hmm. with the book of Job. Mm -hmm. And there's a remarkable internal conversation that Hattie has where we learn that she doesn't even believe in religion. Mm. And that got me thinking about all of these black churches through America. Mm. How many people actually are believers, do you think? I think it's unknowable, you know. I mean, and I think that belief is so vast and so complex, you know. People can believe in the power of a hem without necessarily believing in the doctrine of the church, you know. People can believe entirely in the doctrine of the church. People can not believe in any of it but follow it out of some sort of moral compunction or out of, um, you know, a, a kind of um, desire or need to conform to their community or to whatever their family dictates. It's a pretty complicated thing, I think. You know, my own own grandparents were actually very religious people by the time I came along. I don't think that they were in their youth um, or even in their middle age, but by the time I sort of came on the scene, they were in their 70s, so they were both very religious by then. And I think that they were, particularly my grandfather, really very deeply believed um, kind of fully. But it's interesting because the notion of my own understanding of faith, which is very murky and which is also why I think it's explored in this book, because I find it unendingly fascinating and and a a real 
inroad into kind of what it means to be a human being in some ways. It's contradictory and it's complex. And I think if you if you ask a person when they are at their most honest, you know, when they're not trying to prove anything to you or or not trying to sort of, um, y- you know, repeat doctrine, they will come up with some very interesting things about what it is they actually believe and what it is they don't believe and what they come to because it gives them comfort or what they come to for a, n- a number of reasons. I have been reading for many years uh, James Baldwin's Go Tell It on the Mountain. I, I don't know how many times I've read that book, many, many times. And the relationships that his characters have to their god is enormously complex. For some, it's just sort of a, a harbor or a refuge, not a, not a refuge, actually, a place to hide, you know what I mean? Or an excuse for cruelty or an excuse for violence. Certainly in my book, that's not the case. But that book was very instructive to me in understanding a kind of very deeply Pentecostal encompassing kind of religious experience and the complexities with which people come to those experiences. Well, also Baldwin himself is of the generation of Hattie's children, too. Yeah, he was. And he was a child preacher as well. I think at 14, he had a big conversion experience. And then he was a preacher in this kind of a storefront church in Harlem um, until he was 17 or 18, I believe. And a closeted gay And man also, as well. yeah, exactly, exactly. There's a lot going on in his life, <laughs> a lot going on in those early years. When you were creating Floyd, was Baldwin a little bit in the back of your mind, you think? No, I think Baldwin was much more in the back of my mind when I got to that last chapter. And he was also very much in my mind in six. Floyd is an odd creation. I'm not sure exactly where he came from. And I've been trying to think about it because actually Floyd and Bell are my favorite chapters in the book. Floyd was one of the most difficult to write, that there are, are some of the instances where I kind of said exactly what I meant to say, you know, but I don't know where he came from. And once he sort of came to me and was in my mind, you know, I, there were I kept listening to Donald Bird songs and, you know, and all these kinds of things to kind of help me along. But his origin is, is very mysterious to me. I don't know where he came from. You just said that the Bell chapter is your other favorite. This is the woman with tuberculosis who mm-hmm. is stayed away from her family and wants nothing to do with them and would rather kill herself than get any help. Why do you think that's a favorite chapter of yours? A, I just kind of like her. She's she's sort of snarky and snide and she has a very dark sense of humor. She is also very familiar to me. You know, she she's that sort of rare combination of people who are incredibly she's very smart. She's incredibly self-aware, but that doesn't stop her in any way shape or form from doing things that are completely self-sabotaging and destructive, which I find really interesting and not that uncommon of a contradiction in people. But it, it certainly is fodder for, for good drama, I think, you know, <laughs> in, just from a, a purely sort of narrative standpoint, you know, that there's a lot of richness there to build on. I was reading one of your interviews and you said that you had been having a little bit of trouble somewhere along the line trying to find the 12 tribes trying to make Mm. them distinctive enough. And it's obvious from what you said, you don't want to get caught up in making this some kind of story of the black experience either. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It was was, one of the the challenges was was stamina toward the end. Um, I think probably the last three chapters that I wrote in particular, you know, Alice and Billups gave me a time. Oh, they gave me a time, those two. <laughs> well, but Alice was necessary. Absolutely necessary. Absolutely necessary. And I knew that she was, which is why she was so labored over for so long. Of course, she marries into money. She does. 
And, and I think one of the other things that the book is about, and this actually helped me in when I was sort of getting low in the kind of creative well was running almost dry, was that I began to understand. I, I had this idea in my mind nearly from the beginning, but it became more and more pressing as I wrote that this book is also about class. It's very much about class. And so it was absolutely necessary that someone you know, sort of be removed and kind of marry out of that class into another one. She was very important in that way. She, I think, helps to to underscore some of the class issues that are going on within the family itself. You know, I mean, Hattie is deeply classist and among her other flaws, you know, you know, she, she really does think and, and she will sort of go for the jugular with August. She really does think that she is in some ways better than he is because she's very light skinned and because her family that, you know, when they left the South, her family, her father was a blacksmith. They owned a business. They owned a house. They were middle class. And August's background is not a, a middle class background. I think what happens with the characters in this book is that very clear hierarchies are formed, and they are class hierarchies. However, because we're dealing with the time period that we're dealing with, many of the characters were kind of in the same economic boat. So the hierarchies had to form on different, uh, on a sort of a different basis, you know. Right. But it also became very important that one person, at least, and that was in the form of Alice, actually sort of marry out. You know what I mean? And become of a higher class in the, in the more uh, sort of conventional ways that we understand class. Which brings together the, the notions of the relationship in America of race and class, which I don't think America has sorted out at all. I don't think so either. <laughs> I think one of the things that, that, that happens very often in America is that, well, A, we, we don't like to talk about class. And we like to think that we don't, we don't sort of have these issues, which I think is absolutely just a load of poppycock. And I think the other thing that happens is that we are a country that is so, because of our, our long and very complex racial history, we're so kind of obsessed with race, but so also kind of unwilling to talk about that in certain ways, that we often cover class issues with race issues. It, it effectively prevents us from having to really deal with either one in, in, in a certain kind of way, because we can just sort of, um, we can say, oh, we don't really have class issues. You know, these are racial issues. A blanket is formed, you know. I mean, I think that class in the black community is often not talked about or recognized. You know, it's like either you have kind of the Huxtables, you know, like in the 90s, right? right? Or the other extreme is, you know, projects. And of course, that is an absolutely inaccurate kind of view of, of the black population in this country. But because we're so obsessed purely with race, we, you know, we make these, you know, oh, Huxtables, projects, and that's it. And we don't really have to deal with class or race in that way. Then you've got your people like Herman Cain, and you start wondering, <laughs> you know, how can you completely ignore race just for class? Right, exactly. And I, and I think that, and, and certainly I don't think that's what's called for. I think that both have to be both have to absolutely be acknowledged. And it's interesting, you know, when you think about somebody like like Herman Cain, the, the, the legacy of race being as strong as it is and its continuing effects being as present as they are, there is a tendency, I think, sometimes, especially in the, in the Herman Cains of the world, to sort of think, well, I've classed out of race. But uh, obviously, you can't, you can't class out of race. <laughs> you know what I mean? doesn't, doesn't work that way, <laughs> you know? And then we've got someone like, Clarence Thomas, who has both classed out of race and yet at the same time when he's criticized, goes right to race. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing, you know, and it's really rather a sad thing. And, and I think it really just goes to show how much we have failed to explore either 
properly. You know, and and I think there's a lot of class issues or classes sort of brought up in a way that also is twinned with a kind of race shame, you know? So sort of the Clarence Thomases of the world, and they'll say things like, oh, affirmative action, you know, oh, it's just dreadful and we shouldn't have it. But of course, the Clarence Thomases of the world are the Clarence Thomases of the world because of affirmative action, you know, and, and not because obviously they didn't merit being where they are, but simply because in the time that Clarence Thomas was studying and, you know, sort of beginning his career and being educated, there was no possibility that he could have been educated had there not been affirmative action. Right. You know, I mean, the barriers legally, very legally before the Civil Rights Act were there, you know? So it's it's a messy marriage in which the partners are warring and, and you know, and neither and neither sees the other side and neither is, is even even able to to sort of discuss what's happening on the other side. Do you think that having lived five years in Italy has given you a completely different perspective than most people in America or not? I think to some extent, yes. You know, one of the things, which sounds really unrelated, but I think it is related. One of the things that happened when I lived in Italy is that I became very proud. I became very patriotic. I think that's because though we are continuing to deal with an enormous number of problems, and though we have in many ways as a nation sort of fallen down on all kinds of jobs, there is a dialogue, you know, there is a movement toward progress. Everyone is not encompassed, obviously. But when you're in Europe for a long period of time, you realize how entrenched class is. I mean, it's just deeply, deeply, deeply entrenched. And social mobility is really limited. And there is a kind of xenophobia that extends not necessarily to foreigners coming in always, but just, you know, sort of from region to region, these kind of undiscussed things that are just standard. In some ways, they're what makes things, certain things in, in Europe so beautiful, certainly in Italy. You know, I mean, this this need to keep things the way that they are makes right. the country so beautiful and the food is so good and the wine is so amazing and all these things. But there is also a kind of stagnant thing that happens as a result of that, which we don't have. You know, as much as we sort of fall down on jobs, as much as we fail, there is a dialogue, there is a discussion. And that I think is really remarkable. It, it, it did. It, it, it oddly made me very, very patriotic. You know? <laughs> when you were over there, were you viewed as an African-American, just as an American? Mostly just as an American. It was really funny. There was for a period, uh, mostly I lived there for five years. And at first I lived in Florence. And then I lived in a very small town between Florence and Siena. And when I first got there, everyone would stare at me, not unkindly, but I mean, I was, you know, just completely anomalous in this tiny town. They didn't know what to make of me because their notion of an American is like a blonde person. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Like a yeah. Midwestern blonde right. kind of person, you know? And so they, for a while, they called me La Cubana, which is, you know, the Cuban girl. I was also La Brasiliana for a little while. You know, I mean, like all these sort of incurs because they just couldn't figure it out. And finally, it was like, I'm American. And then... Oh, you know, and, and there was this sort of pause. And then I really did become, I think, just an American. It was a sort of a blanket for, <laughs> for, for everything, you know. Do any of these thoughts and ideas, I mean, obviously not consciously, hmm. but on an unconscious level outside what you were talking before about class, do any of these hmm. other ideas, do you think, seep into 12 tribes? I think certainly the idea of a flawed but forward-moving progress I think absolutely does. I remember being being much younger and feeling 
very cynical. And I think that's happened for a period of time in the 90s when there were a lot of young black people who were feeling very cynical about the civil rights movement and what had happened after that, especially people my age. You know, I'm 39, and I remember going to preschool. You would go to preschool, and there were all these sort of multi-culty things going on. And then all of a sudden, in like 1980, you know, it all stopped. And things sort of seemed almost as though they were going backward. I remember feeling very disappointed and very cynical. And I think a lot of people did, not just black people, but I think a lot of sort of liberal-minded people in general felt deeply, deeply disappointed by what was happening you know, sort of tying back into this point about about living in Italy and and what I saw there and the comparisons that I made over a long period of time, this notion that there is a kind of forward movement, it's an enormous part of this book because when we meet Hattie, you know, in nineteen twenty five and she's and she's, you know, has these babies and and everything is is really very difficult, much of who she is, And how she is forced to maneuver in the world is informed entirely by the fact that she is a black woman in that time period. And by the time we get to the end of the book, uh, to 1980... When she's dealing with her grandchild, she she makes a gesture at the end of the book, and I, I won't sort of explain it because that's sort of a spoiler, but she she feels genuinely that, that it is possible to save this grandchild from repeating the same kinds of heartache and heartbreak that has happened to all of her own children in the course of the years that she's been in the North. And I think that she makes that gesture simply because she has moved so far away from what she came from and the circumstances of her girlhood, that she begins to think, well, perhaps it is not always necessary to move through the world as though everything will always be tragic. And it is not perhaps so necessary to never show tenderness to these children because I have to toughen them up because the world is going to be unkind to them. Perhaps there is the possibility of hope. Perhaps there is the possibility of redemption. And I do think that's the movement of the book. I think very much that some of those ideas that I began to form in Italy about the progress in our country informed that. And of course, at this point, we have a black president who Mm -hmm. not only was elected, but was reelected. Indeed. And of course, Hattie would be obviously ecstatic about that. <laughs> How do you think if Hattie were still alive, let's mm. say, and she'd be a very, very old lady, she surely was. <laughs> about 100 years old, how would she feel about gay marriage? I think she wouldn't like it. I suspect that she wouldn't like it. She's, she, you know, th- This is a pretty conservative community. Her own feelings about Floyd, going back to that second chapter in the book, there's a, there's a point in that chapter where Floyd calls her. And he's he's on the road, and he's he's had this encounter with with a young man that has moved him enormously. The, the encounter is over, and now he suddenly his own sort of internalized homophobia and his fear and all of that kind of comes crashing down on him enormously, and he feels completely disoriented. And he calls his mother, and he asks her about a boy that he had had kind of a crush on when he was much younger. And Hattie hesitates very much during that conversation. She answers him, but she evades, as is her way, of course. You know, she's a pretty evasive woman when it comes to anything that's kind of emotional. But I think that she evades because she understands the reason that Floyd is asking her that question. I think she disapproves. But I suspect also that it is so far removed from any of the things that she considers to be necessary or important or crucial to getting through the world that it is absolutely dismissed. And so I suppose it's hard to tell. I mean, I I think that if, if she were alive now, her knee jerk would be to not approve at all. But I think that also 
any sort of understanding of, of gayness is so removed from her understanding of the world that I think she wouldn't really know what to make of it. And, and Hattie's not a big ponderer in certain kinds of ways. She's an actor. She certainly has her moments of whimsy, but she doesn't really sit around thinking about things a lot. Not because she's stupid, but just simply because she, she feels the need to just keep moving. You know? What if her granddaughter said, this is my partner? How would that, you know? <laughs> I, su- I suspect she would deal with it. You know, I mean, Hattie is, Hattie is a woman who deals with things. You know, I mean, her own children have been so difficult and so in certain ways disappointing and et cetera. And I don't think that she would ever sort of disavow any of them, you know. Well, your own partner is a painter. How do you mm-hmm. think that influences the idea that you're living with someone who's who's a visual artist. Hmm. How do you think that affects your own writing? I think that I tend to think more visually probably because of her. I do have a tendency towards kind of imagistic writing at times. That I think comes from from so many years of having written poetry. My partner is also very minimalist. So things, they tend to be very um, sort of boiled down to their essences or abstractions, which I think is not necessarily so useful in the sort of sentence-to-sentence writing of a book, you know, because people need to have something that they can hold on to and that they can see. But it is great instruction on a more thematic level, I think, you know, that, that you boil things down, that things are represented in their essence, but are not necessarily so easy to sort of point at and go, hey, that's a tree. Books in which you're sort of constantly aware that you're looking at a tree tend to be a little bit tedious. That's an odd <laughs> metaphor, but but you know what I mean? Like, oh, sure. like a, a sort of heavy handedness and over literalness when dealing with themes, I think can be really off-putting. It is at any rate for me. It's not my taste. She'd be the one to point out to you too much. Too much. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> certainly. Too much is often an indicator, at least in my own experience, and sometimes with my experience of other books, too much is an indicator that that something is out of focus, that there's some sort of uncertainty about what's actually being discussed. One of the things that I learned uh, when I was at at Iowa from Maryland and and from the experience of being in Iowa in general is that, you know, pretty sentences on their own just don't cut it. You know, like they have to be in the service of something. And I think a a lot of times, you know, people get to Iowa. I certainly did. And, and, you know, I was like, oh, I can write a pretty sentence. You know, I mean, I can write a pretty sentence. But it's not sufficient. It's utterly insufficient. And so sometimes when there's a pile up of of pretty sentences, I begin to wonder if there is something that is not being... um, handled in its proper depth or that isn't coming into focus or that the writer is unsure about or something like that. One final question about uh, 12 Tribes of Hattie. Mm -hmm. How did you know you were finished with the book? Well, in some ways, it was very easy. The very uncreative, un, you know, writer in the Garrett and the cold answer is just as I got to the last one, you know, <laughs> there were 12 tribes and I was, you know, I got to Saul and I was finished. But, but but actually, there was another ending. There was a there was a kind of epilogue for a while that, that existed even when I turned it into my editor. And, and we decided uh, my editor has a soft touch and is very gentle, but is also very decisive and very smart. And we decided that that epilogue wasn't necessary. I thought that I had to kind of go a little further with Hattie, but actually it was quite sufficient that we sort of see her as an old woman at this last moment of kind of extending some sort of grace to a child. That epilogue, when did that take place? It was much later. Hattie was very, very old. Um, So it was, I want to say maybe 2006 or something like that. She was quite old, maybe 2005. I don't remember. It's, It's sort of in a drawer. I wonder if I can use it for something at some point. 
She was an old woman. She was maybe like 99 or something. She's and she's old. looking back at she's her looking life. back at her life. But it was too, you know, it was really prosaic. And it was kind of like, oh, now we've sort of been with this woman through her whole life. And now she's going to look back and process things and have her regrets. It's that, you know, it's just <laughs> 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 the, the Bronx chair, I guess, is not is not really a good radio sound. But but anyway, it was just it was too it was too prosaic and too obvious. Have you had any interest from Hollywood on this yet? Not that I know of. Seems a very difficult book to make into a film. I mean, maybe, maybe a, maybe a series or something, but I, I can't imagine how one would make it into a film. But I, I'm in by no means a scriptwriter and don't understand such things. So I'm sure all kinds of magic could occur. Um, but yeah, thus far, thus far, nothing. And uh, you're working on another book yet? Very slowly. I have an idea that is super fragile, so I don't really talk about it because it's it's too fragile to, to be exposed to, to even my own verbiage. So it's sort of there at the moment because I'm on tour and, and, and doing all these wonderful things right now and also teaching. It's sort of at a standstill, but I'm very glad to know that I have it to go back to when things calm down. You've been listening to an interview with Ayanna Mathis, whose novel is titled The Twelve Tribes of Hattie. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. 